episode. Well, kind the, of. <laughs> the first episode we're sharing with the general public. <laughs> yeah, we we did this once before and it turned into a three hour long ordeal. <laughs> yeah, that that was it was a learning curve. It was. No, it was fun. And I'm sure we will release it as an unaired episode for the price of $1,000. Yeah. <laughs> Just like nice, easy entry level there to our bonus content, right? Yeah. Yes. Hello. And welcome to the first ever episode of Square Mile of Murder. I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And Why did I sound surprised by that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... We're, we're what, 28? I think. <laughs> I'm nearly 29. <laughs> yeah, you're older than me. I, I think we should, we shouldn't be surprised by our own names anymore at this age. You know, you'd be surprised. Some days, yeah, it's just true. a lot. <laughs> so for our first ever episode, we're going to be talking about the case of Rachel Nickel and the investigation into her murder, which became notorious in the British legal system. I love a good notorious case. Yeah. And and because I did the script for this, you don't even know why it's notorious yet, do you? It's going to be a learning (laughs) experience for us all. (laughs) I am just along for the ride. And I'm going to make as few sarcastic comments as possible. But I don't promise anything. No. I mean, to be fair, we are extremely sarcastic people. Really? You don't say. Never. And uh, that's going to come through because that's just how we talk. That's just how we roll. Oh, yeah. Also, hi. Uh, we're recording in Glasgow. Neither of us are Scottish. So sorry. Yeah. We, we just decided we're honorary Glaswegians. Yeah. Can't take it away from us. We're staying. Yeah, please. Sorry. Please don't take it away from me. I'd prefer not to go back to America. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go back to England, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're good here. Yeah. So, on with the show. <laughs> so, Rachel Jane Nicole was born on the 23rd of November, 1968, to parents Andrew and Monica. And she grew up in the village of Great Totham near Colchester in Essex. We think it's Totham. It might be Totham. Please, you know, write in and tell us. Yeah, tell us how wrong we are. Yeah. We, you know, we love a bit of social media. It's our day jobs. (laughs) So come and tell us if we're pronouncing it wrong. And when she's at school, Rachel tried her hand at acting, singing, dancing. And the teachers thought she was a natural. But instead of pursuing the arts, she decided to continue with her studies and did an English and history degree. Um, Rachel supported herself during her studies by working as a lifeguard at a pool in Richmond in southwest London. And it was here that she met motorcycle courier Andre Hanscom in 1988. And a year later, in 1989, the couple moved in together in an apartment in Balham in South London. And Rachel gave birth to their son, Alex. I want to be a motorcycle courier. I mean, I just like motorbikes, so I want to learn to ride one. (laughs) They scare me, so I don't really want to be a motorcycle courier, but I just... Like, I've heard of bike couriers, <laughs> but not, like, you get there so much faster. Yeah, it's like when the guys deliver your pizza, but they just come on a scooter. Oh, yeah. That's pretty much all it is. It's not a proper motorcycle. Well, maybe it was, but oh. most of the time. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> all right. Con- continuing <laughs> on. Thank you. So, Rachel had also been a model before she gave birth to Alex, and is it was at and at the time of her murder, she was a full-time mother, and but she had aspirations to become a children's television presenter. And she turned down a lot of modelling work after Alex was born, um, just to stay at home and look after her son. Um, so, time of, well, in the months leading up to her death, Rachel often took her son Alex and their dog Molly, who is a Labrador. I thought you'd like that little bit yes. of extra information. Uh, for walks on Wimbledon Common. So Wimbledon and Putney Commons are a group of three like large protected green spaces in southwest London. So there's Win- Wimbledon Common, Putney Lower Common and Putney Heath. And a side note, Wimbledon Common is the home of the Wombles from the old children's TV show. 
What the fuck is a womble? Oh, they're reviving it, so you will see soon. Oh, no. Yeah, I actually it came across it on, like, Instagram, I think, this morning. And it's all CGI, and I'm like, nope. What? No. Is it like that show that they had us watch in class that was, like, uh, the Night Garden or whatever? Uh, no. Long predates that, and I had forgotten about that. Yeah, that, that we were made to watch children's TV. That was a in horrifying experience class. for me, I have to say. No, uh, the Wombles were like, um, I don't even know how to describe them. They're kind of before our time. I don't think, I think they were on in like the 80s and early 90s. Uh-huh. Are they like creatures or humans? They're or? like creatures. They're like fairy creatures that live on Wimbledon Common. Yeah. And uh, Rachel used to take Alex to Wimbledon Common because she felt safer there than the parks closer to her home in Balham. Rachel and Alex, who at the time was two years and 11 months old, were walking the dog, Molly. Gotta get the dog's name in there every time. Always. Um, uh, In Wimbledon Common on the morning of Wednesday, the 15th of July, 1992. In a secluded area, a wooded area of the common, Rachel was attacked and she was stabbed 49 times and sexually assaulted. And like we said, she was just 23 years old. I mean, any any murder is horrific, but she's just just, 23. She had so much promise, so much life yeah. to live. And her little baby son was there. It was just... I mean, that's, that's the worst part. It's awful. Well, no. The worst part is that... <laughs> it's all the worst was, part. <laughs> yeah. The worst part is obviously that she was murdered, but... For the people left behind, that that her son had to yeah. witness that is just truly horrifying. Yeah. Um, the worst injuries were to Rachel's neck, and forensic experts concluded that Rachel had been attacked from behind, which means there would be little to no blood spatter on her attacker, allowing them to blend in with the general public as they left the common. Um pathologist estimated that Rachel's time of death was 10.30 that morning. And uh, that's an important time to keep in mind, 10.30. Yeah. Uh, good thing to remember as we continue yeah. on. Put a pin story. in it because it will become very important as we go on. Um, Rachel was found by retired architect Robert Murray, who saw a pair of bare legs sticking out towards the path and initially believed it was a sunbather. But when he got closer, he realized it was Rachel and Alex. Some reports say that Alex was left unharmed, while others claim he was beaten by his mother's murderer. What all reports seem to agree on is that when he was found uh, by Robert Murray, he was clinging to his mother's dead body, crying, wake up, mummy, over and over again. That's just heartbreaking. And I actually read in one article, which I'm annoyed I haven't been able to find it again. Because, you know, I closed the tab on my laptop and then went, I'll remember it later. That's why you never close any tabs. That's my approach. Rookie mistake. But, yeah, I found this one article that said that during the attack, like, Rachel's keys and, like, money had fallen out of her pockets. And that when they were found, Alex was trying to, like, put the money and the keys and everything back in her pocket everything and it's just it's just so heartbreaking so sad. That, that and he's not even three years old yeah that's but also like three years old that's sort of the time in your life where you are starting to form those more permanent memories and so it's yeah. like especially if they're like scary or traumatic ones and that's just so fucking awful if that's yeah. one of your first memories. Yeah, that's one of your earliest memories is your mother being murdered. Brutally attacked. Yeah, just being butchered in front of you. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. It is. I can't really... This is a great light case to yeah. start off on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we're doing well. <laughs> we could have done some sort of, I don't know, clown murderer, but... Oh, uh, you know, fraud or bank robbery. Yeah. But no. <laughs> Lo- long-term con... No, 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 no. Wimbledon Common uh, is a very popular place, and it was 
popular in 1992 as well. It covers approximately a thousand square acres. And on the morning of July 15th, 1992, there were an estimated 500 people on the common. Uh, added to that, there was very little physical evidence left at the scene. And, you know, keep in mind that DNA was still very much in its inf infancy in the early 90s and very small samples. They weren't testing them at that point. And the only witness was a child, a baby, a two, almost three-year-old, and he was very traumatized. And the police didn't really have any suspects, and the investigation was hindered right from the very start. Yeah, I mean, that's not really a good starting point, is it? No. And, you know, now you can pick up, like, a DNA profile from, I don't know, a grain, like, I don't know, a millionth the size of, like, a grain of salt or something. Yeah. Whereas... Back then, you needed something that was like the size of a fifty pence piece, which, what is a, what what can we translate that into for our international listeners? Well, for Americans, fifty uh, p is it's a bit larger than a quarter, but not quite as large as a half dollar, which most people probably won't have seen if they're young enough anyway. So I didn't know that, but I've only been to the states once. Yeah, you, half dollars aren't really in circulation. Ah, that's a shame. Yeah. I like them. <laughs> of course you do. So due to the lack of suspects, the Met Police took what was quite unusual at the time. They took the unusual step of bringing in a forensic psychologist. And they brought in a renowned psychologist called Paul Britton. And if anyone is old enough to remember Cracker, the TV show, which was the early 90s, uh, that is actually based around or inspired by Paul Britton, hmm. apparently. Um, yeah, so in the UK, uh, profiling and that kind of forensic psychology didn't catch on uh -huh. the same way it did uh, in the States and with the FBI and everything. Mm -hmm. So in the early 90s, it was still quite unheard of to have that, just to have a profiler because they're still really contested <laughs> as to whether or not they're useful so but anyway they brought in uh brought in paul britain and he developed two profiles one was almost a, a demographic profile of the killer and the other was a psychological profile sort of detailing what their mindset would have been mm -hmm. uh, in the lead up to rachel's murder so Britain believed that the killer would be aged between 20 and 30 of average intelligence would either be still living at home with parents or alone in a flat or bed sit somewhere close to Wimbledon Common, uh, that he would have a history of failed or unsatisfactory relationships with women and would have unusual hobbies or interests, including knives and the occult. Ah, uh, yes. My hobby is knives. Yeah. Just, you know, like to take them out and sharpen them and look at them. and which, Whilst reading books about the occult. Which actually, <laughs> to be fair, my wife does just really like knives. <laughs> which is like maybe a, a, a bad thing for me. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Stay I'm tuned. In. Maybe uh, broadcasting the next episode solo. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. And Paul Britton did not believe the suspect would have killed before. So he believed this would be their first kill, but that they would have a history of uh, sexual or antisocial offending, such as indecent, indecent exposure, stealing underwear, um, and that they would watch violent pornography. And so this is this is just your demographic profile. Oh God, I mean that's incredibly detailed. It really is for a murder where there is one witness who is under three years old. Yeah, and zero usable forensic evidence yeah. at that point. Oh, sorry, in terms of DNA. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It's um quite in depth. But 
It also sounds like a profile for every serial killer in the world. I mean, that's fucking true. <laughs> it's like, okay, so I'm going to make this really detailed profile, but at the same time, it's also really generic and can be applied to most yeah. murderers. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't really see how valuable that could have been. But then again, we don't work in law enforcement. No. Probably a good thing. Far from it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the psychological profile said that the murderer would have poor social skills, uh, which would lead him to feel rejected by women and want revenge for that rejection. Great. Woo! He would have little power over the people in his life but have fantasies of power and sexual control or coercion but a fantasy no longer satisfies him and his sexuality is inextricably linked with abuse exploitation degradation and defilement of women and it's important to note that although paul Britton is supposedly renowned a forensic psychologist this all this is based on his previous contact with patients in a secure psychiatric unit Hmm. it's not actually based on in-depth work with serial killers as you know um the fbi guys in mindhunter whose names completely escape me right now uh john douglas and others in the (laughs) behavioral (laughs) science yeah so yeah it's so it's not... It's questionable. Yeah. And actually, in this country, and I'm sure in other countries, uh, anyone with a psychology degree can actually call themselves a forensic psychologist and hire themselves out to the police as criminal profilers. Oh. Which is essentially what Paul Britton did. And he basically got very good at networking. And so he'd help out a local police unit and then they'd consult another police unit and be like oh we had this guy in and that's how he became so known uh to the police wasn't because he was the best at what he did oh no so keep that in mind oh no (laughs) yes um along with the profile the police also managed to produce a photo fit of rachel's murderer uh and photo fits they're like like composite yeah. joints. I mean, there's a lot of different names for them. I don't even know if photo fit is what the British police use anymore. Yeah. But because this case is from 1992, so a lot of the documentaries about it were made in the late 90s, early uh-huh. 2000s. Um, so, yeah. But like composite drawing. Yeah, because, well, and like, I feel like I could be totally wrong about this. Could be just about to talk some real bullshit. Um, uh, that's what editing's for. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think PhotoFit is one of the computer programs where you like go through and say like, oh, it's it's those ears and it's those eyes, and then you mm. like put them all together. Ah, that's interesting because I have no idea. That's just the word that's used in the yeah. documentary. So, yeah, we can. Can you find the uh, PhotoFit? online the image of it yeah we'll post it on social media yeah we'll as well. put it up with the and like um, the episode on the website yeah because i i have a lot of feelings about photo fits and composite drawings because eyewitnesses in general well yeah but no when you look at some of these these drawings i'm like how do you get from this to this person yeah they don't look anything alike and that's i don't know I've never been in that situation where I've had to look at a composite drawing and be like, oh, yeah, it was this person. Yeah. You know, so maybe if I was in that situation, it would be different. But I'm always like, really? You got from A to B just like that? Yeah. From that drawing alone? Yeah. Not buying it, but, And, like, memory is such that, like, if someone asked me to describe someone that I saw on the street for, you know, two minutes... (laughs) Yeah. It'd be useless to be like, um, he had hair. Yeah. That's the thing when people can give like, r- like even estimate like heights and weight of other people. And I'm like, how? I don't even know. <laughs> like, I, don't... I don't even know how tall I am. Exactly. That's like... I just hope I'm like, I think I'm like five, seven. Yeah. Possibly. It's maybe. Like, um, I'm short. <laughs> so they weren't. So they must be taller. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
Oh, what did they weigh? I don't know. All I know is the size of my own ass. I know. I don't know how you eyeball. It's That's like a county fair thing of like, guess my weight. <laughs> like, fucking hell. I can't do yeah. that to just anyone on the street. No. Um, but anyway. Yeah, but anyway. Um, yeah, so they produced a photo fit and uh, Alex, Rachel's son, was sent to a child psychologist but struggled to tell them what the attacker had looked like, which, I mean... Of course. Is, at this point, just under three years old, just seen his mother murdered. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd be able to tell anyone. I think I might be a little traumatized by that. Even now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. But in the back of a police car on the way home from one of these uh, psychology sessions, psychologist sessions, uh, his father, Andre was reading a book to Alex and Alex was making comments about the people in the pictures. So Andre started drawing a series of stick men, fat or thin, black or white, etc. And they soon had a full profile of what the murderer looked like. I mean, I think that's brilliant that, you know, in the space of a few minutes in the back of a car, his dad can do more than a psychologist could. Yeah, well, just it just kind of goes to show that sometimes the environment that you don't necessarily expect is the more helpful yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, they say this is a small child, most likely very traumatized, yeah. and being sent to a stranger. Yeah, which is, is more traumatizing. Yeah. So, but Not, I mean, I, there are cases where that has worked, but in this case it didn't. Yeah. And, you know, you know. Kudos to Andre for thinking of that. Yeah, it's really, really clever, actually, when you stop and think about it. Yeah. Um, so between Alex's memory uh, and their brilliant profile uh, creation mm-hmm. um, and other witnesses' accounts who said they had seen a man acting suspiciously on the morning of the murder, police developed a physical profile that the murderer was approximately 5 foot 10 inches tall, aged between 20 and 30. Um, He had short hair and wore his belt over his shirt, not his trousers. That's a bold choice. Oh, it is. That that was a thing during, like, the noughties when... Everyone was wearing, like, boho gypsy skirts with them big belts. But, like, were men? No. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. I just can't, like... I know sometimes I miss a belt loop, but I don't miss the whole waistband ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just defeats the entire purpose yeah. of having a belt. I mean, you don't need to hold your shirt up. Your shoulders do that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Why as well just put it around your sh- fucking chest at that point? That's a bra. Mm. <laughs> exactly. I thought you were going to spill your cocoa. Hopefully not. Then. <laughs> that was a badly timed joke. <laughs> oh. So. Right. Bold fashion choice. Very... <laughs> Very bold. Can't stop thinking about what this might have looked like, quite honestly. (laughs) Um, So the photo fit and profile were broadcast on Crime Watch in September of 1992. Crime Watch was a show on BBC that ran for 33 years from 1984 to 2017 and reconstructed major unsolved cases and appealed to the public for witnesses. After the show was broadcast, more than 800 people rang Crime Watch to identify the man in the photo fit. That's a fucking lot. Yeah, that's... Especially when you see the photo fits. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's a lot of people. Yeah. So obviously, 800 people, all these tips. Mm. Most of them are wrong. Yeah, most of them are wrong. Yeah. But there were two names that came up more than once in all of these Collins. Uh, those names were Colin Stagg and Robert Knapper. So during the initial investigation, 
police developed a list of 548 suspects and questioned 32 men in connection with Rachel's murder. Colin Stagg was one of those men and quickly became the police's biggest suspect. Yeah. 800 people. Only four. Four? Identified Colin Stagg. Wow. And he then became prime suspect. So that tells you how many people are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you know, most of them will have had perfectly good intentions. Yet you will always get people, you will always get crank calls. Yeah. Oh, and you'll sure. always get tip line crazies. <laughs> yes. You just want to be a part of it all. Yeah. But only four people. That's a very, I, sitting here quietly trying to do the math in my head of the percentages. And I'm just like, why are you trying? You can't do math. But that's a low percentage. Not 0.5. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the I'm not the mathematician of this pair. Yeah. I don't I won't go that far. <laughs> it's an easy number. <laughs> if you say so. Would you like me to explain the math? No. <laughs> anyway. Colin Stagg was 29, single and unemployed at the time of Rachel's murder. He was living alone with his dog. And we don't have a name for this dog. Oh, no. I'm very Can upset. we name him? You, you go for it. Mm, Ebenezer. No, you've lost your dog naming privileges. Damn it. He lived alone with his dog, Ebenezer. Yes. On the Alton Estate in Roehampton, less than a mile from where Rachel was murdered on the common. So at first glance, he does fit Paul Britton's demographic profile of Rachel's murder, uh, murderer, but I'm sure there were plenty of men aged between 20 and 30 living alone within a mile of Wimbledon Common in July of 1992. I mean, most likely. Call, call me a skeptic, but... I don't think he was the only one. Yeah. But um, Colin said that on the morning of July 15th, 1992, he had taken his dog, Ebenezer, for a walk on Wimbledon Common at about 8.15. So remember the times. The times are going to be important. 8.15. So yeah. we, we've had a, a 10.30. So yeah, the pathologists concluded it was about 10.30 that Rachel was murdered. Um, so Colin Stagg went out about 8.15. But he had a bad headache that morning, so what would have been a long walk with the dog turned into quite a short walk. So, mm. you know, just out, walk the dog, back home. Um, he claims to have been home by 9am, took a couple of painkillers, had a nap on the sofa, slept it off. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable explanation. Mm-hmm. However, a neighbor said that she saw him leaving for the commons at 9.30 that morning. Uh, and Colin Stagg said that she was wrong. It was on another day that he had left at 9.30. And he remembered because he had spoken to her or seen her on that day mm -hmm. previous to Rachel's murder. So, But on the day, adamant, 8.15. Um, and he says he woke up again late morning headache had lifted decided to take the dog Ebenezer <laughs> out for a longer walk which you know is what they would normally have done if he hadn't been feeling a bit ill so gets changed off they go and he took his usual route from the estate to the common uh, but found the entrance was taped off by police uh, spoke to the officer at the entrance who told him um and Colin Stagg told the officer that he'd been on the common that morning walking his dog, but he hadn't seen anything unusual. And, you know, freely gave the officer his details and then went on with his day, walked his dog somewhere else. Fair you know? enough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, 500 people were estimated to be on the common that morning. There, you got one of them accounted for yeah. on his way. Yeah. <gasps> No, 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 no. Oh, no. Nothing so simple. Oh, no. So after the profile and photo fit had been aired on Crime Watch and Colin Stagg had been identified by viewers, he was arrested on suspicion of murder. Of course. Why not? 
And um, whilst he was under arrest, the police got a warrant to search his home. And they found books on the occult and Wiccans. Ah, well, we've got half of our weird hobbies. Now he just needs some knives. Yes. So, by this point, police have decided Colin Stagg's their man. Of course. No. He lives alone. He walks his dog on the common. He's single, unemployed. He He likes the occult. Yeah. Obviously. Like, I'm sorry, but if someone came into this flat right now, (laughs) is my flat, and saw the amount of both books and um, artwork on my walls that reference murder, I'd be fucking arrested. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not doing much better. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a large collection of kitchen knives. Oh, yeah. I just bought new knives. I love knives. Like, when they're sharp, for cooking, (laughs) not for other reasons. Yeah. So... Important to make that distinction. Yes. I am not, in fact, a murderer, despite my Mm. choices in reading material. Yeah, well, my mom used to be a chef, so I now have a really mismatched collection of kitchenware and lots of knives. Yeah, it's the way to do it. Yeah. And, yeah, plenty of books on serial killers and... I think I'll probably have some on the occult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of heavy metal CDs. See? And I still have my Halloween decorations up. Oh. Lots of skulls. Well, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> they, the police question him, try and get him to confess, you know, as they do in every interrogation. He denies it. Doesn't confess. Of course. I would. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nah, you know, oh, I've got nothing to do today. I'll confess to murder. Why not? Strangely enough, it has happened before. True. We'll get to that at some point, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes. So they did, however, get a confession out of him, just not exactly the one they wanted. (laughs) So he did confess to nude sunbathing on the common, Hmm. which is technically illegal because it's technically indecent exposure. Yeah. Um... So, uh, according to Stag, the part of the common that he was on was really popular with nude sunbathers. So it was an area everyone locally kind of knew. Mm. It was just just a thing. But, because they'd got him to admit to that, they charged him with indecent exposure. And he was advised by solicitor to plead guilty. And he was fined for £200. And now along with the unusual interests and living alone and everything, they now have a history of sexual offences. Because indecent exposure. Of course. You know, um, well, according to the uh, profile, it was uh, sexual deviance. Yes. Mm. So... Getting a tan. Yeah. It's very deviant. I mean, that's part that, you know, I just wouldn't want to risk the sunburn. No, true. Like, I barely expose I... my arms to the sun. <laughs> I do not want to expose any more sensitive bits than, say, the backs of my knees. <laughs> and imagine trying to put sun cream on Oh, in a public place. No. How bad would that look? Really, really bad. Yes. No, no. No. No, no, no. I mean, if it's what you like to do, go for, go it. for it. So, yeah. Colin Stagg, obviously a fan of the nude sunbathing. We are not. No. He left court with his £200 fine, thought it was all over and done with. They couldn't hold him because they had no proof he was a murderer. He wouldn't confess. So away he goes back to his life, thinking it would all go back to normal. But of course, it did not. The police couldn't get Colin to confess to Rachel's murder. And there was no concrete evidence that he had committed the murder. There was no evidence at all. There was a profile. Well, that's evidence, obviously. And nude sunbathing. Yes. But I think it's a big leap from nude sunbathing to murder. I mean, hopefully. Right. So, no evidence. He didn't confess. Because, like, I don't know, maybe he didn't do it or anything. Just, Just a thought. 
Um, Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) And so what are the police to do? Well, they devised a plan, hatched it, if you will. They called it Operation Edzel. 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 I think. Or I'm going to call it Edzel. Edzel. You can call it what you want. Okay. Uh, and this operation is one of the things that made the case so infamous, um, aside obviously from the severity and sort of awfulness that was the attack on Rachel in general. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the really sad things about this case is that what happened to Rachel Mm -hmm. and other victims that we'll get to is just so overshadowed by just police incompetence yeah. and yeah that i don't think there's a strong enough word to explain the level of idiocy yeah yeah so of course besides the the attack um the way the police decided to pursue relentlessly Colin Stagg was you know one of the reasons that this case became yeah. so well known um, <laughs> Operation Edzel was conceived after a woman named Julie Pines contacted the murder squad to tell them about an interaction she had had years earlier with Colin Stagg. Julie had placed an ad in a Lonely Hearts column in a newspaper. Um, did the uh, viewers who are young, uh, listeners who are younger than us, know what Lonely Hearts are? Because I mean, I don't know. I know, but I don't have any kind of recollection, like in my like teens, yeah, of ever actually seeing them for real. I I've never seen one in like a newspaper, but mm. I've seen them in films. Yeah, in newspapers. Yeah, I think that's that's it. I've seen them on like films and TV, yeah. but never in real life. So, Lonely Hearts are kind of the precursor to online dating yeah it's like yeah. it's like you would play tinder the- but slow <laughs> really fucking yeah slow. so you would basically place an advert in a lonely heart section and it was you know female 30 something brunette blah 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 likes long walks on the beach and seeks same yeah good sense of humor all that kind of stuff. And you just put an advert in a paper and someone might write to you. But also, like, you're paying probably by the word or by the characters. So it's probably yeah. full of all these weird abbreviations. Yeah. That are like F, uh, 32, B, R, N, hair. <laughs> Brun hair. Brun hair. <laughs> Seeks M. 30s blonde hair <laughs> it's maybe a good thing that lonely hearts columns died out yeah, before maybe. we <laughs> before we became adults because we would not be good at it no no <laughs> no 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 i mean yeah let's just not go down that subject <laughs> um but yeah so that's basically what a lonely hearts yeah. ad is yeah uh Yes, so Julie had placed an ad in the Lonely Hearts column in the newspaper, and Colin had answered the ad. And after sending a num- number of letters back and forth, Colin wrote a letter detailing what he describes as a mild sexual fantasy, and Julie did not reply. Um, from what we could find, there wasn't really anything particularly deviant or violent uh in the letter it was just about having sex outdoors in a public place but you know clearly julie she wasn't into it which fair enough not everyone is yeah but yeah mild sexual fantasy that's like mild that's not a word you usually hear yeah (laughs) this is like a casual it's like mild porn yeah mild salsa (laughs) sexual fantasy So it was mild as opposed to spicy. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Not your hot sauces of sexual <laughs> fantasies. That's also that you can feed your mom when she comes over. <laughs> or is that just me? Right. Okay. So 
he wanted to have sex outdoors. Julie wasn't having it. She was like, nah, man, goodbye. And so um, then she saw the media coverage uh, years later uh, about Colin Stagg, and she went to the police who linked the content of the letter, again, he wanted to have sex outdoors in a public place, with the circumstances of Rachel's murder and sexual assault on the common. Clearly. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously... I mean, why, why didn't anyone else see this beforehand? Yeah. Man wants to have sex outdoors. Man must obviously be a sadistic rapist and murderer. Yeah. Like, I mean, clearly. Because when you... Like when you reduce it down to the bones of it, which is that is what it is. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous. And I think I think police should start doing that. Yeah, just like take a second and be like, let's break this down to its smallest component parts and see how it really sounds to the rest of the world. Yeah. And what will a judge think of it? Mm. Will a judge accept it into court? Will the C will the CPS accept it? Which is Crown Prosecution Service. Mm. I guess it's like a DA's yeah. office. Yeah, DA. Um Yeah. So after coming across this, uh, you know, groundbreaking discovery in the case, <gasps> the police again called up good old Paul Britton. And Woohoo! they began an undercover operation to try to get Colin to confess. Um, undercover WPC? Yeah. Uh, woman police constable. Oh. So yeah, PC is male, WPC is female. Oh. Might have changed now, I don't know. Cool. So, an undercover lady cop known only as Lizzie James, her real name has never been revealed, began writing to Colin Stagg under the pretense that she was a friend of Julie Pines, and having read the letter he'd sent to Julie, she thought they would get along well, because, you know, she liked sex outdoors. Yeah. And that Julie is just such a stick in the mud. mm well, maybe she didn't want to get stuck in the mud. Exactly. <laughs> stuck in the mud. More ways than one. That was bad even for me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So over a period of several months, Lizzie and Colin wrote to each other and their letters quickly became very sexual in nature about being sexual in nature, I imagine. <laughs> you can't write these things in for me. I'm going to take advantage. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. I'll give you that one. <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, with Lizzie detailing her violent sexual fantasies, so not quite as um, wholesome as I had imagined. Yeah. Right. So Lizzie detailed her violent sexual fantasies and Colin, who had never had a relationship at that point, replied in kind, trying to impress her. Yeah, so he was trying to impress her, and she would write to him using phrases like, I need you to show me what a real man is. And in his reply, Colin Stagg writes, I'll show you what a real man is. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'll show you what a real man is. But nice. But in British. You don't want to give that a go? Just started to, and in my head it came out Australian. So <laughs> maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> we'll leave the accents for another day. <laughs> she wrote, I need to feel defenseless and helpless. And his response was, I'll make you feel defenseless and helpless. And on and on and on. Which, like, okay. So she is definitely leading him. Yeah. And every expert, every like um, expert that has talked about this case has pointed that bit out. Every yeah. documentary where they talk about these letters, it's been pointed out she is leading. So Colin, and, Colin Stagg and Lizzie James eventually meet up in person uh, in Hyde Park. And Lizzie revealed to Colin that she had when she was a teenager, had been kidnapped by a black magic cult and been forced to participate in the ritual murder of a baby. Oh, well, didn't that just happen to all of us? Yeah. Like, you know, casual Tuesday night when you're 14. I mean, like, that's... What the fuck? <laughs> like, 
That's out there, man. And okay, so I know I think is it about three months they've been writing to each other by the time they meet, but still, would you bring that up? No. So just like not just not matter of fact, but you wouldn't just tell someone like that. No, would it's you? like it, he was like in a public oh, place. Oh yeah, I I went to uh, Ireland on vacation when I was fourteen, and she's like, I you, oh, I got one that'll top that, you know. <laughs> I was kidnapped by a black magic cult and participated in baby murder. Yeah, and it's just like, oh cool. That must have been fun. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is the... <sighs> so many questions. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's literally what it was. It was to try and get him to, to then be like, well. <laughs> well, this one time, <laughs> I was in Wimbledon Common. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, and I know hindsight is like 2020 and everything like that, but... Dude. Why did nobody see how ridiculous this was at the time? It's like, it's a lot. No. Just not having it. So they're talking about, you know, ritual baby murder. Baby murder. <laughs> and yeah, the aim of this so-called confession from Lizzie uh, was to get Colin to confess to Rachel's murder. But Colin barely reacted to her confession and the police decided his lack of shock or outrage was proof that he murdered Rachel. Obviously. Yeah. Because why not? Like, mm. I don't know how I would react to that I story. Think... I think I would be like, oh, cool, 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 cool. And just sort of quietly try to find a way to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> yeah. Obvious conclusion by the police. Of course. Yeah. He's the murderer because he doesn't react. Whatever. Mm. So, uh, however... Colin says that he never believed a word of Lizzie's so-called confession and thought that she was a bit mad, but also attractive. And he wanted to sleep with her. Like, fair enough, man. Yeah. So during subsequent meetings, Lizzie told him that she could only be fulfilled sexually by the man who had murdered Rachel Nickel. That's a very specific. Right? Very. That's. I just. And it's. It's so soon afterwards. Rachel's murder. Yeah, I just find that very strange as well. I I mean, the whole thing's strange. Like, at that point, would you not be like, are you a cop? You have to tell me if you're a cop. Like, oh, you know what really gets me going? And only this thing? Yeah, how, how, just, why do they think that this was a good idea? I don't know. Jesus fuck. I think that's, a, that's just the whole question that hung over this whole case. Yeah. It's like, who thought this was a good idea? Who did this? <laughs> Come on. Fess up. Um, so. so, right. So she's all like, you know what I really need in a man? And he's like, listen. Uh, He repeatedly tells her he didn't kill Rachel and even goes so far as to apologize, saying, I'm sorry, but I didn't do it. I mean, (laughs) like, I'm so sorry I didn't murder that poor woman. I'm I'm really sorry I'm not a murderess, so Uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, I know it's a bummer, but can you look past it just for me? Please. Just this once. Yeah. I I promise after you sleep with me, I'll I'll go and kill someone. Yeah. I promise. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but police, being police, decided yeah. they had enough evidence in the letters and recorded conversations and rearrested and charged Colin Stagg in August of 1993 uh, and held him in Wandsworth Jail. The one name we didn't run through before recording. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wandsworth. Wandsworth. Jail. Wandsworth Jail. Um, on remand for 13 months until uh, his trial went to court. When the case went to pre-trial, Colin Stagg's defense team made a motion to dismiss the evidence gathered from Operation Edzel uh, because it was a honey trap. Clearly. Certainly fucking was. Yeah. 
Where? <laughs> just what part of that did they think would stand up in court? Like, okay, so we tricked this man into writing a bunch of violent sexual letters and tried to trick him into confessing to a crime we have no evidence he actually committed. Please send him to jail. Yeah. So Justice Ognall threw out the evidence gathered in the undercover operation. Um, He did this because he judged it to be dangerous, the idea that a psychological profile could be admissible as expert testimony to prove identity. Yeah. I mean, that's the... That is the most eloquent way of saying everything we've just said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't... Yeah, it's not proof of identity. No. They say there'd be plenty of people who could fit that, that profile. Yeah, exactly. And he condemned all the evidence gathered in the operation uh, and said it was a substantial attempt to incriminate a suspect by positive and deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. As the police offered no other evidence against Colin Stagg, the whole case collapsed before it even went to trial. Yeah. As it Um, should have. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. Uh, Mr. Justice Ognall, I mean, he's quite a famous judge. He he was a judge all part of um, the trial of Peter Sutcliffe, the Mm -hmm. Yorkshire Ripper. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think he rejected uh, certain deals that the uh, defense wanted to make to do like insanity and diminished responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he was like, no, you're going on trial. You killed 11 women, I think. You killed 11 women. You're going on trial for it. Yeah. Yeah. He's worked on quite a lot of high profile cases. Right. So he's a rock star. Yeah. And uh, once uh, just Sognal had thrown the case out, Colin Stagg, wa- Colin Stagg walked free. So at this point, we have someone, you know, we have to remember like the basic tenet of our legal system, mm-hmm. and that is innocent until proven, proven guilty. So he walked free, innocent man, and the police, they, they weren't happy. Of course not. So they released a statement saying they would keep keep Rachel's file open, but they were not pursuing any of the suspects. I mean, that's pretty damning. And they said that exact same thing to Rachel's family. You know, he did it. We will get him one way or another. We're not looking for anyone else. That's so fucked. Yeah. And there's interviews since, since they actually caught her murderer. There's interviews that have come out with her widower Andre you know being said you know they were told it is definitely him he did it said they were just pushed so far in one direction that when they actually found the murderer it was like fuck oh wait what what happened yeah (laughs) like they yeah Jesus that sucks and so in every statement that's made by her family um they you know believe the police uh, and they're like, well, okay, the law is being upheld. I think her dad's words were, the law is being upheld, but where is the justice? Mm. Yeah, they've upheld the law. You can't enter a forensic profile. Uh, yeah, you can't have a profile that identifies someone. It yeah. doesn't work. And that's your only evidence. Yeah. No. So, yeah, the law's been upheld, but as far as the family, as far as the whole of the British public, basically... We're concerned Colin Stagg got away with murder. Yeah. And Rachel's case became a cold case. And they actually kept Colin Stagg under surveillance for over a year. So he's done 13 months in prison on remand. uh, Wasn't allowed bail. So he's held on remand for 13 months for a crime he didn't commit. And he's now been kept under 24-hour surveillance for a year. Jesus. Um, and yeah, they say he was free, but so many just thought he was lucky. Yeah. And he was a man that got away with murder. And he was hounded by the media for years after. Uh, Rachel was murdered in 1992. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Colin Stagg was arrested in 93 and it went to court in 94. So that's bearing in mind, I was born in 91, so I was three when it went to court. Mm -hmm. I remember this case. Oh, fuck. I don't remember that court case, but it was so notorious the way he was hounded, the way they tried every which way to frame him. That's what they were trying to do. Yeah. That I remember. Damn. I say, Rachel and her family are forgotten in so much of this because they're living with that trauma as well. Yeah. So they they don't have closure. They think that the man who murdered, you know, their partner, mother, daughter, friend, you know, they all think that he's got away with murder, yeah. walking the streets. Just walking around. And, yeah. So after this monumental fuck-up, and waste of everyone's time, ruin everyone's lives. It was the most expensive criminal investigation in the history of modern British policing at that time. Damn. At the cost of three million pound. Yeah. And achieved, let's say, it achieved nothing. It just ruined even more lives. And yeah, fell into the cold case pile. And that's where Rachel's case would stay until 2002. So bearing in mind, 10 years later, DNA and forensic science has moved on massively. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I also got to say, some sources say it was 2002, cold case team picked it up. Some say 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Thereabouts. Yeah. Early 2000s. Um, and there actually had been DNA found on Rachel's clothes. Hmm. Uh, but like I said, Early, early 1990s, you needed a massive sample to test. Whereas by early 2000s, they could test this small sample. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it is now where you can have a forensic sample fairly quickly. I mean, you can't have it as quick as TV shows would lead you to believe. <laughs> yeah. But it took 18 months of testing, this sample. Damn. Yeah. Um... And it took 18 months before they could even conclude that this genetic material didn't match Andre or Alex Hanscom. Oh, yeah. So so just to... So just to prove... Eliminate. Just to eliminate yeah. um, the partner, who was never a suspect Wasn't anyway. Because yeah, he around, right? Had, uh, he, was an, he had an alibi. He was at work. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think he was ever under suspicion of any kind. That's good Yeah, for a change. Yeah, they could eliminate people, but they couldn't confirm identity with it the same way we can now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was enough to finally exclude Colin Stagg. So 10 years after Rachel's murder, and at that point the most expensive criminal investigation, they've finally, they finally proved him innocent. Oh, good. Yeah. You know, innocent until proven guilty and all that. Um, so yeah, this is early 2000s. They've excluded Colin Stagg finally. But again, fell into the cold case pile. And it would be another three years before the police would finally find the correct subject. Subject? I mean suspect. <laughs> <laughs> One of those two. <laughs> Subject, well, he's a subject of... An investigation. Yes, I was going to say of the Queen. So, you know, we're all subjects in Uh, a way. We we went a different direction with that. (laughs) (laughs) So, the police finally find the correct suspect, Robert Knapper, our old friend from the Crime Watch program. See? And Taylor's gonna mention him. Yeah, Taylor's gonna tell you a bit about him. That's right. I am going to tell you all about Robert Knapper, and we're gonna get into all the details of, you know, his life and crimes, including what happened with uh, Rachel Nickel. But you're gonna have to wait until part two of this first episode. So. Thank you all very much for listening to this first part of the first episode of Square Mile of Murder. 
and uh, come on back to part two and hear the resolution of the case. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.